0: Um, I just I really didn't know. I, I wanted to uh, say something about the uh, the recent events. You know, the past week has been pretty shitty, uh, just in regular news <sighs> and political news. indeed. yeah. so I, I decided that also, uh, as a as a nice thing, because of something else that happened this week, I would read a few paragraphs from um, this Tony Morrison essay. Uh, that she wrote uh, right after uh, Trump was elected uh, so it was just like a dispatch it was a, sh- a brief commentary so i guess as t- to comment on this on the week uh, we'll we'll leave it at, at tony morrison to keep alive the perception of white superiority these white americans tuck their heads under cone-shaped hats and american flags and deny themselves the dignity of face-to-face confrontation training their guns on the unarmed the innocent the scared, on subjects who are running away, exposing their unthreatening backs to bullets. Surely shooting a fleeing man in the back hurts the presumption of white strength. The sad plight of grown white men crouching beneath their better selves to slaughter the innocent during traffic stops, to push black women's faces into the dirt, to handcuff black children. Only the frightened would do that, right? These sacrifices made by supposedly tough white men who are prepared to abandon their humanity out of fear of black men and women suggest the true horror of lost status. It may be hard to feel pity for men who are making these bizarre sacrifices in the name of white power and supremacy. Personal debasement is not easy for white people, especially for white men. But to retain the conviction of their superiority to others, especially to black people, they are willing to risk contempt and to be reviled by the mature, the sophisticated, and the strong. If it weren't so ignorant and pitiful, one could mourn this collapse of dignity in service to an evil cause. The comfort of being naturally better than, of not having to struggle or demand civil treatment, is hard to give up. The confidence that you will not be watched in a department store, that you are the preferred customer in high-end restaurants, these social inflections belonging to whiteness are greedily relished. So scary are the consequences of a collapse of white privilege that many Americans have flocked to a political platform that supports and translates violence against the defenseless as strength. These people are not so much angry as terrified, the kind of terror that makes knees tremble. So, it is with uh, somewhat of a heavy heart and a shitty start that uh, I wish you uh, well, comrades. We're back in the bunker. We're in the shadow of Rockford Tower. We're in the belly of the beast. And we're going to have a conversation that's a little unique. We haven't had one of these, but I think we're going to start having more of them. Uh, Today in the uh, the hot seat is the uh, director of the Creative Vision Factory, the former committee member and chair member of the Chris White Gallery. Uh, the artist, the activist, the Michael Kambach.
1: <laughs> thanks for coming in. Hey, thanks for having me. <clears throat> you know, it it has been, it's been such a heavy week. Um, and uh, for me personally, I, um, you know, working at the Creative Vision Factory, surrounded by um, poverty, surrounded by, you know, kind of Wilmington's, you know, basically dirty laundry, you know, um, I've... Uh, I'm coming back from a couple of vacations and um, my re-entry, I always joke around with my staff at work that uh, the re-entry is always really tricky, you know, and sometimes I completely burn up in the atmosphere coming back in the pocket on the 600 block of Shipley street. Um, but this past, uh, this week already, just a uh, man, just a, a sadness that has just kind of gripped me, you know, uh, Coming back and seeing a lot of people, um, you know, um, navigating homelessness, all kinds of trauma, all kinds of violence, all kinds of hyper-aggression, and, you know, sometimes coming back in, I just, uh, you really do lose a sense of hope, and, um, I think the biggest thing that we've really focused on this past year at the Creative Vision Factory is really trying to focus on how the, how do we sustain ourselves throughout all this? You know, I uh, I ran into a, a mutual friend of ours today this morning, walking down the street. Uh, was uh, a real tall figure. Okay, That's Eugene on, Young.
0: Needless, I, I mean, you only had to say there's only one. And uh, there's only one extremely tall man that is probably mutually uh, <laughs> friends of ours.
1: So he's uh, he's walking on the back of Shipley Street, and it was really clear to me that he was on the back of Shipley Street so he didn't run into anybody on Market Street. And he's heading down, heading towards the courthouse. And um, just seeing the guy gave me a little bit of a shot in the arm, gave me some hope. And um, you know, at the Creative Vision Factory this past year at our 3 o'clock recap meeting with our community, uh, we ask everybody to reflect on three positive things they've seen today. And... uh you know, after years of working in this environment, um, I realized that, you know, when it comes to the negativity, we have, you know, we all have our honorary doctorates on that. And, uh, if we don't try to even, even if it's just like, Hey, I saw Eugene today, or Hey, I, I saw some cool artwork being made or somebody supporting one another. We, you know, in our community have to end the day with some positive thought and, uh Yeah, really thinking about, like, how do we sustain our work, our our long arc, our our work towards justice. Uh, Burnout is so real, and I've really been searching for those things to really try to find some buoyancy over burnout.
0: Yeah, we had um, Erica Gutierrez on last week, and she's such an inspirational person um, and so positive. And she made the point, too, she made it around the Internet but it's the same. It's, it's like a, you can get stuck in satire and irony and you, and you just get burnt out. It's just so pessimistic and cynical Mm -hmm. and you have to kind of find your way out of that. Yeah. Um, yeah <laughs> it's it's very it's very difficult. It, it's
1: endemic in the arts too like in the art community you you know you're in the art community when you have people hating on the art community that's like the first sign that you're in the art world and everybody's hating and uh, I think then too in in our kind of uh, political circles too you know we're pretty famous for that as well and um you know there's there's room for that and there's it's important to be critically aware and to you know to be skeptical but some at some point in time we're gonna have to like yeah, <laughs> do something that's going to uh, rejuvenate us. And um, you know, this, this week though, I just found it really incredibly hard. You know, just back to back shootings. I'm coming into a situation then where I'm coming back to work, and it's great to see everybody. But then too, you know, it's not getting any easier out there. And um, and then to contrast that just with the you know the changing landscape of downtown and all the all the cheerleading that takes place in the city of good things that are happening. And um, oh, it just it pains me. I, another it's the little veneer,
0: it's the veneer of progress.
1: Another thought that I uh, think I wanted to bring up with you today is uh, as I'm waiting in line at uh, Brouhaha, I, I looked at a I was skimming through a, a Delaware Business Times, <laughs> and, uh, and it had a uh, on the on the cover it had uh, uh, the presidential candidates and the amount of money that each candidate. Uh, you know got from uh contributions coming from Delaware. So obviously, you know, Joe is in first place, followed up by Trump, and then Mayor Pete third. Yeah, I mean Warren I, Sanders.
0: Yeah, I mean it makes sense. Yep. It makes perfect sense. It does. We have a we have an insular um sort of uh, tax haven here that's run by, you know, people of the neoliberal school. And so the idea that those were the be the three is is probably predictable Yep. yeah well i'd like to get back to, mm-hmm. to cr- the creative vision factory because i think it's so um the work is just so incredibly profound both the art and the community work uh i just find fascinating but um we didn't meet until you made a piece of art for us like 10 years ago which is a funny story because mm-hmm. you were doing um you had done something on the art loop i think you were a dcat at the time and you were um, you were pouring paint through impressions on like uh, some kind of fiberglass or plastic. Yeah, stuff. yeah. And so I had seen it, and then I brought Susan back to see it, and we were like, and the things that were impressed into the thing were, were like provocative terms, or one had like the the governors of Delaware since then, so it's like Carper Castle. Miner, you know, it was like <laughs> all p- p- paint the paint uh, through it, you know. Well, it was all
1: the Delaware governors in my lifetime. Okay, yeah, I all remember stacked it was... <laughs> on top of one another, and then I was pouring acrylic paint through them. Yeah, and so the actual form of the text like created the, the yeah. image.
0: Yeah, so we were um, just fascinated by the by the process of it, mm-hmm. and and the and the um, statement of it so you came over we didn't even have a dining room table at the time we had a pedestal to a table and it was just like a pedestal so we all had glasses of water and we we're looking at this a uh, wall and you're looking at it and talking about colors and what you want to do and i said you know i have an idea for the the what i'd like the phrase to be like the motto and you're like "Well what well yeah i said i don't know if you're from around here but we used to have these signs of place a place to be somebody well we didn't place to be i'd like to, mm-hmm. to say a place to be somebody and you, yeah, i'll never forget what you said you looked right at me and you're like i will definitely pour paint through that <laughs> <laughs> So that's how we got that that mm-hmm. that piece. But speaking of growing up in Wilmington, so mm-hmm. I, I actually don't know mm-hmm. where where did you grow up? I grew up I
1: grew up in Western Pennsylvania, okay. Somerset County. Uh, my grandfather uh, worked for U.S. Steel Edgar Thompson Mill, which was uh, Carnegie's first steel mill, and uh, Braddock, PA. And he moved the family out of Monroeville to Somerset County, which is a big dairy farm area. Uh, and actually commuted in Braddock for, like, a, his last, like, I think, like, five or six years with U.S. Steel with this idea that as the kids are getting older that he wanted to get them out out of the big city and out into the country. And he, you know, he, he, this, I have this beautiful picture on my laptop of him overlooking the farmhouse that he got. Now, this is a guy that when he was three years old, his father was killed in a tragic uh, train accident. He was a railroad detective and was actually crushed by a train. Uh, You know, no social supports at that time. I mean, this was like 1930, (laughs) and uh, here's his mom's trying to take care of like eight kids. So my grandfather's got this wild story. He ended up like lying about his age, getting into World War II as a 15-year-old, comes out and thanks to nepotism, got a really good job at U.S. Steel, thanks to his uncles. And then um, I think his general foreman at the time was my grandmother's dad, and, uh, they, they met each other. They were like, uh, they grew up across the street from Kennywood Amusement Park. And so we are definitely, my family is definitely Western PA, Pittsburgh Steelers fans. Well, well, and, uh, well excuse that, I yeah, suppose. Yeah, okay. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I, ended up growing up, uh, you know, when my parents got divorced when I was four, cause I was originally born in Ephrata, Pennsylvania. When my parents got divorced, my mom moved in with her, her folks and we moved out to Somerset County and, uh. Yeah, you know, my grandfather took me. He was he retired early, took me to all my baseball games, and uh, hung out with them a lot. And you know, very much Western PA.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's it's funny. It paints like a, uh, you know, obviously there's strife there, there's divorce and moving and everything, but mm-hmm. it sounds like a uh, American story.
1: No, no totally. It's and, like a and, bucolic you know, like,
0: setting, and looking over the uh, the rolling hills of Western PA the whole the whole deal
1: Uh, my grandfather in his retirement he uh, had a job as a caretaker of these homes right next to seven Springs ski resort and so I grew up hanging around uh, this big property by myself most of the time hanging out in the ponds playing through people's houses and little did I know that these are people's second and third homes that my you know grandfather is like mowing all the grass and making sure the pipes don't freeze but I had like this kind of playground uh, you know, in the backyard of the 1% for, uh, you know, ski resort homes. And, um, so it was kind of a trip, you know, I didn't, re- you know, realize like at the time, just like how, uh, how poor we were, you know, my mother then ended up finding an apartment at this place that I love to this day, fresh paint makes me, uh, takes me right back to village way and village way apartment complexes for low income tax credit property and in town. And uh, to me, it was like it was an oasis. Like, There's tons of kids. There's playgrounds. There's woods behind it, and it was just it was awesome yeah, it to go from like nothing there. to like all you know all this action. Shock to the senses, no, big time.
0: Yeah, yeah, cool. Yep. So when when did when did the the art bug hit you? When did this? Oh,
1: really early. You know, I, I, my mother always kept me in art supplies. Uh, took me to museums. She always tells a famous story of taking me to the to the national gallery and i was kind of bored and a security guard came up to me i was like hey why don't you tell your mom to take you to the ball game and i was like yeah you know we should go to a baseball game (laughs) and uh you know years later after my first trip to the metropolitan i called her that night and and thanked her for not taking me to the ball game you know she always instilled uh uh the arts and and being in front of pittsburgh area too you know um you know, we had the Andy Warhol Museum and that kind of legacy loomed large my my great aunt was an artist and she was a public school art teacher in in Pittsburgh you know after leaving the convent though which was like scandalous ah, wow, for our family I, see. I'm a, I, I'm yeah, a, so.
0: I I grew up Catholic too <laughs> mm-hmm. so there's always like stories like that I mean uh, yeah. even here in the uh, in our surrounds mm-hmm. uh, because we live in still a pretty tight mm-hmm. sort of parish situation here yeah, yeah, yeah there's always like the 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 uh, sort of elderly woman living alone but everybody's visiting her yeah yeah, yeah. that was the nun (laughs) well
1: my my great aunt ann martin uh huge uh influence on me and and uh uh just a great big personality she always there was this famous story of hers when she left the convent was teaching public school in those first years uh she was so sheltered and uh she had kids in her class come up to her and was like miss martin miss martin that girl back there called me a hoe and she was like well you go back there and you call her a rake, <laughs> and so I <laughs> nice. bring that story up every once in a while at the Creative Vision Factory. They love it. Yeah, that and goes over huge yeah. there. Yeah, <laughs> nice.
0: So I know um, now. Did so you found your way to this area via University of Delaware, right? Yeah, Is graduate that, school. I yeah. was
1: I was teaching high school art in Virginia for three years. Uh, I had a temporary license to teach. It's kind of a weird kind of like.
0: Now were you still getting the your your. Uh, your first degree and you got your first degree in virginia
1: not in uh at bloomsburg university bloomsburg. In pennsylvania okay yeah. yeah it makes sense and so um yeah i got my first degree in studio art had no plan uh had no idea uh you know i think uh, my big plan was i was gonna maybe move in with my friend ben in philadelphia but then i met rebecca my now wife and you know my grandfather said you follow her wherever she goes be her page turner (laughs) and I did just that you know so she she got her first teaching job in Virginia you know I moved down to be close to her and in this really strange uh, turn of events Uh, I got to meet the high school art teacher at the high school that she was teaching at this guy named Michael Faulkner Um, he told Rebecca after meeting me uh, that he was actually planning on leaving the position at Christmas and did she think that I would be interested in a high school teaching job? And she was like, well, you know, his mom's a teacher. I think he'd be interested. And, and so uh, Rebecca helped me with my cover letter and resume, and he resigned, and I applied the next day. And I actually got to shadow him in the classroom right right after, like, Thanksgiving break. And then uh, after Christmas break, I took over as the high school art teacher at Washington Lee High School in Montrose, Virginia, uh, a county that uh, both George Washington and Robert E. Lee were born in and both moved out of that county before they were three years old. It's a place that you get the hell out of. Uh, you shouldn't start your career there. You should probably end your career there if you're not a from there. But it was a, f- a fascinating kind of a first job after, um, after undergrad. And for me, it, it really, like, seeing the high school art room from the other side of the desk was just really weird. You know, I'm not, you know, I'm like, you know, just turned 23, 22, um, you know, pretty close in age with my like seniors at that, at that time. And, uh, for me it it was, it was a real trip because that, that job was also, uh, came shortly after my first year clean and sober. And, uh, you know, for me to, to all of a sudden like be in charge of a high school art room, you know, and just like a year and a half earlier, like in, (laughs) <laughs> in a pretty dark place yeah
0: I mean this um, is a you know somewhat uh you know they, they've had some stories because it, it animates so much of the work you do now um you know for the for the, the, the folks you're you're working with now mm-hmm. um but yeah I mean you had your own s- struggle um, did that start? I mean, how how young? were you how young did you start and start struggling with that?
1: Well, I don't. Uh, you know, my my first kind of uh, encounters with uh, w- with drugs in particular were like really uh, creative, uh, fun, and uh, productive. You know, like you know, those kind it of eat like like yeah, some like, yeah, yeah, you know, shit like that. I think that and in Somerset County, Pennsylvania, too. Like, if you are not driving uh, back roads. Um, high, listening to mixtapes. There's, you know, you're not to be trusted, <laughs> and so, uh, you know, it's kind of like a varsity sport out there. And you know, those early experiences were really creative. And it wasn't until I got into college that I really started to, uh, I think the, uh, really started to going overboard. And uh, you know, the, you know, the work that I've been doing in in the field of you know of, of mental health and recovery now, it's it's easy to look back and and say that look like. You know, I started started off talking about moving out to Somerset when I was four after a divorce. There's a lot of turmoil there. Uh, You know, I had a lot of really good stable adult influences in my life, but there was also a lot of chaos, you know, and so. Uh, all the research suggests that you know uh, between the ages of zero and eighteen, uh, all these adverse childhood experiences expose you to traumatic stress, and actually, you know, inhibits how your how your brain develops. And so, uh, there's a famous study out in uh, that Kaiser Permanente uh, did called the the Adverse Childhood Experience Study. Uh, it's a questionnaire. Uh, you answer yes to yes or no to ten questions. Everyone that you say yes to, you get a score of one, and so when I took the test, I, I had a score of four. And a score of four, you're like something like fourteen hundred times more likely to use intravenous drugs than somebody with a score of zero. And it's like, I encourage everybody to check out the A study. And so the A study really. Um, you know, a lot of people in in Delaware refer to it because of the uh, kind of the buzz term of being trauma informed. You know, and you, did you know we we're actually a trauma informed state?
0: I didn't. I didn't know that that was a. That was, I try to stay away <laughs> from buzzwords as much as possible. But
1: yeah, well, it's like it's it's. So what is it, that? I it's mean, hilarious it's hilarious like, to me. It's like okay, so you're trauma informed, so you're aware of trauma, but are you doing anything structurally to like? decrease the amount of trauma. That's that what people the concept the to. concept is like, that the
0: no. the 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 mechanisms of the of the state health public health wise recognize that there's trauma. That's it? Yeah. That's what it means?
1: Yeah basically. So I don't see that we're not really doing anything kind of like policy wise different. It's the opposite of profound it's gonna like create more trauma uh, yeah. you know uh, you know segregated school system, you know, lack of investment in people. You know, these are the things that could like make a yeah, less and, traumatic and, and, and as, development. And,
0: and then you and then you you know you flood the market with uh, with opioids. Mm-hmm. You know, went from intravenous to mm-hmm. something easier, and mm-hmm. more powerful.
1: Well, and then, too, it's like you have civilization's greatest painkiller out here on these streets for you know way less than a pack of cigarettes. Yeah. And a lot of people, you know, that I see every day in my work that are they're really really hurting and you know we're in our ninth year at the creative vision factory and i maybe 9 years ago when i started to work um i would have I, I definitely thought that maybe you know there's definitely a behavioral health crisis on our hands that um you know just tons of uh you know substance abuse out there 9 years later i i see it as uh as an adaptive behavior, uh, I see it as a, as a money crisis, not a behavioral health crisis. You know, when people don't have any money, you're going to make a string of maladaptive decisions. These decisions though, are like usually pretty effective in the short term. <laughs> and again, too, when it comes to the heroin that's on these streets, like, like I said, you have civilization's greatest painkiller available for as low as like three, four, five dollars. You're going to be able to scrape that together really quickly and if you're outside, you know these opiates—they hit you. It, It's—it feel its not just the you know uh, f- you know physical pain that it treats. Yeah, you know, it treats emotional pain. I've heard somebody say it's—it's it's like being hugged.
0: Yeah, you know? that's the one um, I've had my uh, my own struggles, you know, and it wasn't just really one drug. I I I was um, you know for whatever reason didn't get into intravenous drugs but mm-hmm. it was a combination of drugs and everything that goes along with that sort of lifestyle and mm-hmm. scene and it's dangerous mm-hmm. because yeah it's treating more than just feeling good it's uh it's other mm-hmm. things that are, are extremely significant mm-hmm. that need to be sort of dealt with mm-hmm. that we don't deal with very well at all
1: mm-hmm. well and then, too, and then you have you know prohibition on top of everything and so it's like yeah, you know, we have people who are, are seeking, you know, some relief, and then because of you know a, a legacy of discrimination um, and all of our our drug policy basically is oppressive. You know, it that is what creates the danger. And we see so many spikes and in, in all these overdoses throughout the throughout the city. You know, the common denominator is that uh, you know if, you know folks are poor and because of the laws they're isolating. And this is something that's not that da- like we can we can reverse these things. We can test these
0: products. Um, yeah, the 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 ways that we've historically dealt with it are actually the exact ways to perpetuate it. Mm-hmm. Keep people in the prison pipeline in and out. Keep people out of work. Mm-hmm. Uh, don't get the people the whatever other you know medical treatment that they need. Yeah, we don't mm-hmm. do any of that. Mm-hmm. You know, we 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 do the things that really perpetuate it. Mm-hmm. But I do so. <clears throat> you, you you wind up nine years ago um, starting this, and it's I've heard little pieces of the start story, but yeah, you, you, you leave the art school job, in, the uh, high school art teacher job in Virginia, and, and you make your way to the University of Delaware to do your MFA. Yep. And so now you're sort of in the, in this area, since I know you uh, had worked with DCAT a little bit, um, and help with, uh, I guess, open the Chris White Gallery. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, but explain, um, I guess, the the background leading up to and exactly what Creative Vision Factory is, um, because when when you think about not only the art you do but what you're doing for the community, I think it's important everybody understand sort of how you got into it and what it really does. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So I was at the Delaware College of Art Design. Uh, you know, and looking back, I was lucky to get the job because I, I my thesis show was in the spring of two thousand eight. All right, so like I had an interview that winter at Boston University, and at that time, there seemed to be a lot of jobs out there, and then like the crash happened, and then there was no jobs, and of course I bombed the interview at Boston University, <laughs> and. And I'm freaking out because not only is my thesis show uh, coming up, but my wife is pregnant with a due date right around the time of the thesis show. It's good planning. And so, yeah. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, pressure pressure makes diamonds, I guess. And um, so um, I ended up interviewing for a position uh, in the admissions office at the Delaware College of Art and Design. and And the thing that really kind of put me over the top was my high school teaching experience. And, you know, like uh, they were confident that I would be able to make some inroads with some high school art teachers. And so, uh, you know, I, I accepted that job. My wife used to rag me for quite some time that, Oh, you know, congratulations, Michael, let's, uh, let's uproot ourselves. You go to graduate school and then come out and take a $10,000 pay cut. Cause you know, ultimately that's what happened. But spring of 2008, as an artist, I was lucky to have work. And, um, but my job at the Delaware College of Art and Design was really to you know, to recruit students and to recruit students to go to an art school is already hard. To go to a two year art school in downtown Wilmington is even harder. And so it became really clear to me right off the bat that I was gonna have to if we're gonna sell this program, I actually had to get involved and do stuff in town and and then too, you know, being an artist, uh, you know, I wanted to um, still kind of be a part of a community, to still make work. And as a, as a new father, it was going to have to happen local. You know, It was going to have to happen here. And, um, you know, not the easiest place to launch an art career or to have an artistic community, but uh, the coolest part about the scale and, and the fact that 2008 uh, downtown was basically a ghost town was that you could basically do whatever you wanted. There's tons of vacant properties, tons of space, uh, working at Dcad and just being an employee, Dcad opened up a lot of doors in downtown. And of course me, you know, with the, you know, with the hipster glasses and the beard and the MFA, you know, like, like red the, carpets the are sky. being, you know, like, you know, this is this kid's going to turn everything around.
0: Yeah, you could have been you could have been the uh, the Buccini Pollen of the art world.
1: Well, our first exhibitions were actually held in vacant property by Buccini Pollen Group. And so all of those buildings <laughs> we used to uh, yeah, right where Lafia is now, we used to do all kinds of shows there. Uh, uh, one of my my all time favorite art exhibition that we put on was in LaFia and it was this artist f- that was in my MFA program named Jared MIM, who made these piñatas that were all in the shape of small children. <laughs> <laughs> he had. He had like a little iPod with a bunch of music on it, and he would, uh, had this elaborate pulley system. So he'd hook up the kid pinata on this pulley. He'd ask somebody to operate it, and then just like turned off all the lights and just blared this dance music. And you know, that's the kind of shit that we did on the art loop in 2009. You know, like <laughs> no We, we got to bring out. that shit back.
0: <laughs> I was just on the art loop. It was, it was all right, but we, there wasn't like fucking baby pinata, a, kid pinatas. And it's shit. at
1: any time that I do, Stro- I'm in a
0: strobe light and just like massacring kid pinatas.
1: <laughs> I've been too salty to like go into LaFia lately. Yeah. You know, uh, but you know, when I walk by there, I think about those times,
0: and I'm, I'm not going to forget it. We now. also
1: did a we did a really great baseball themed exhibition called "The Rules for Staying Young," right there at where LaFia is now. But we also blocked the street on Fifth Street there my, between Shipley and Market. The
0: first time I heard of you was mm-hmm. when you did this because my brother Kenny uh, came to me. and was like, dude, this guy just shut the street down. He's got like batting cages. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There. We set up a batting cage. <laughs> and
1: I actually I pitched batting practice the entire length of the opening. So I must've thrown like 400 pictures or something that day. It was, it was a real trip. I loved it. Yeah. But you know, so early on, I'm I'm, I'm working at DCAD. I'm trying to be involved in the arts and, and all these exhibitions were were born out of a little uh, group I created called the New Wilmington Art Association. And so it was uh, basically my UD MFA cohort with a bunch of other local artists. That's when I first started like working with Mike Podolak and, uh, Lots of really great community, and we're thinking through a bunch of vacancies. Um, You know, it's funny, uh, the connection we made with the Buccini Poland Group at the time is they have all these properties. There was a bunch of, like, community block grants that enabled them to redevelop second- and third-floor apartments, but there was no funding whatsoever to address the the first-floor retail space. So a lot of these spaces, like where the 4W5 Cafe was, were just gutted. And so we came in and like painted the walls white and started doing these weird kind of like avant-garde shows. And uh, basically every time we did a show, we paid $100 and like uh, we had to put together a liability insurance plan. So that like the cost of that plan became the NWAA dues. Yeah, and, was, uh, just the bare minimum. Yeah, of- we had a really good, like, three- or four-year run. But it was that activity that got me involved with the uh, Shipley Village Community Development Corporation. And that's when they were um, getting ready to demo and create what is now Shipley Artist Lofts and Chris White Gallery. Yeah. And so uh, it was called Shipley Village CDC at the time. It was named Chris White CDC because uh, uh, three days— before our grand opening, Chris White, who is the executive director of uh, Community Legal Aid Society, was tragically killed on Shipley Street in a hit-and-run car accident. And so uh, that year of working with Chris, getting ready to open up this low-income artist housing project, uh, just seemed like everything was coming together. You know, I'm, I'm in in a city. It's not the city that I was like that I wanted to be in, but I'm working as an artist. I'm working in a city. <laughs> you know, I. Uh, Basically, doing what I've kind of set out to do, and and met this guy that was like helping us create this artist, low-income artist housing, and uh, things were coming together really rapidly. And it just with Chris's enthusiasm, you just felt like you're just gonna keep winning. And uh, he was just a really great guy and did did amazing work. He used to call me the the artist commando, you know. And uh, and so when he died, you know, we had to really. Uh, The shame of, like, working with Chris is that he did 90% of the work. So that was a good thing, working with Chris. The bad thing is that he also did 90% of the work. And we had to really figure out, okay, like, how the hell do you manage one of these low-income tax credit properties? And that's when I first started to see this kind of, like, weird underbelly of, like, okay, this sounds good, you know, low-income tax credit, you know, affordable project. But then you know, getting to meet the property managers of this facility, it was like, oh my God, like these people always assume that the tenant is dead wrong, you know? And, you know, here, you know, Chris was a tenant advocate. Uh, It was really interesting navigating that of, you know, wanting to create a place that was affordable and accessible. But the whole story of that building too is this like story of just trying to do what is doable, um, you know, uh, it even becoming artists' low-income housing was born out of the fact that St. Andrews and Matthews Episcopal Church that owns the land and owns the building, they could not get single-room occupancy built there. Nobody wanted it. Nobody would fund it. Nobody wanted those people right there in the middle of downtown. But all of a sudden, this idea of mixed-rent artist housing comes about, and then all of a sudden you start to see some investment. And so it's a— It's a shame, you know, and this is the thing that I've, you know, always talked to young artists about is that, you know, if you have a sense of, you know, right and wrong, and if you have hopes as to what this society and country and state can be, Uh, Know that you know your work as an artist is going to be exploited for other means you're going to be serving other people's Agenda and there was a reason why the developers and the Buccini-Cupolin group was so friendly to us when we first started working in downtown You know they saw that our work was going to create a you know a a safer environment and create more investment and make it cool and um, You know, I I remember being in a boardroom at the Delaware College of Art and Design literally talking about how to redirect prospective students and parents around some of the surrounding neighborhoods. It's like our worst nightmare at that time was that somebody would, like, plug in 600 North Market Street on a GPS and drive straight to the school. It's like we are trying to, like, curate, like, how people would come into the city. You know, like, I remember, you know, one of the first times – that I really started to see the city in this way, you know, I uh, was taking my in-laws into town to show them the stuff that I've been up to. And I, I just took the route that i normally take, you know. And I'm sitting there uh, across the street from 4th Street McDonald's, and all of a sudden the door's locked in the car. And here is I think it was my mother-in-law who locked the doors, and that sound, like that click. I started looking around, and I was like, oh, shit. That was... <laughs> I was seeing that area through her eyes. Yeah. And I was like, okay, I could see, you know, why she locked the doors.
0: Yeah. I mean, if if you if you have no sort of frame of reference or if you're not sort of familiar with where you are, I could see, you know, you feeling like what's happening here. Because mm-hmm. some of the spots, some of those corners were, you know, they were rough. Mm-hmm. But the cool thing that you were able to do was sort of, as you sort of – uh Put yourself in these positions through your work. Mm-hmm. Um, then you, you know, you got the the, the housing and the gallery, mm-hmm. but you were able to do this sort of like, I guess, a grant partnership yeah, with so it, Health and Human Services yeah, to so open like, the studio, which mm-hmm. is absolutely incredible.
1: So one of our one of our first tenants at Shipley Artists Loft, Shipler Loft, early on, it was thought that like I would organize the tenants and we would create like a tenants association, and that was for me the first like kind of like real wake-up call that I needed it was a it was the first time I realized that every project that I've worked on up to this point I was doing with my close friends trying to organize 23 artist musician tenants who don't know one another to kind of like self-govern a gallery (laughs) it it was kind of a nightmare you know and uh, it was really messy And uh, unfortunately, it's like I didn't have Chris there for guidance, you know, like and, uh, you know, Chris died and there was a a Delaware lawyer kind of quarterly magazine that came out later that year that was all dedicated to Chris. And Matt Den had this little piece where he was remembering being at this community meeting with Chris White where Chris was talking about this new legislation that he worked on that would enable uh, mobile homeowners associations the first right of purchase should the land underneath their property be sold. and so. Chris was a, a fierce advocate for these folks, and he's trying to explain this legislation in this big community meeting, and he's getting killed. Like, people are, like, yelling. Uh, he's trying to, like, walk back different comments, and it's just real ugly. Chris gets back to his seat, and Matt then leans over to him and says, Chris, you know, this, this legislation is going to be your Frankenstein. And, you know, Matt then in this piece wrote that Chris turned to him, like, with a smile and said, yeah, isn't it great? Like, <laughs> it's like Chris had this enthusiasm about him that yeah things are tough yeah things are messy yeah it's hard but it's worth it and yeah, it's right
0: that goes back to mm-hmm. uh, what we've talked about and hear a lot about all different kinds of people's work as we were saying mm-hmm. earlier if you want to stay sort of positive or energized now of course you can't do this all the time mm-hmm. but it really helps to have to find a thing find a fight that you like to fight yep, yep. Like you have to want to do mm-hmm. that and something has to, mm-hmm. p- to sort of tip you and sort of motivate mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. But once you're doing that thing, mm-hmm. you got, if you, yep. you got to just keep, just do it, just, <laughs> just enjoy, um, embrace it. You well, it's got to be fun. It. Yeah. It's just like I flies guess that's, in that's the face. A, you pl- have to, you yeah. have to figure out the best way to which what, what, you know, choose your weapon sort yeah. of thing.
1: And it's a, if it's not, I mean, it flies in the face of all kind of like, you know, everything we know about kind of evolution. You know, if it's not pleasurable, you know, folks aren't going to fucking do it, you know? And, you know, so we've got to make the work fun. You got to make it something that you're going to be excited about. And, you know, so I'm trying to organize this tenants association at Shipley Lofts, and one of the first tenants got in um, was the founding director at the Rick Van Story Resource Center, Alan Conover. Um, you know, our artist uh, preference policy at Shipley Artist Lofts, you know, is very it's very weak. It's a, you know, ultimately, artist preference is a discriminatory tool. You know, it discriminates for the educated poor. That's why, you know, low income artist housing got built right in downtown. The cool thing about it is that Delaware State Housing Authority was really super gun shy about the first proposal that we had. You know, we we put forth this plan that was loosely modeled off the Boston Redevelopment Authority that created this like five year artist certificate that was peer reviewed and and Delaware State Housing Authority is like, you cannot do this. Like we need something that any property manager can look at and be able to put the applicants in a pile of artist and non artist And so, uh, you know, at the time, you know, the artist preference was really, I thought was really weak. I then come to find that, you know, this is great, that it's re- <laughs> it's really weak, you know, because like, you know, the, I was having this kind of crisis of conscious of how can we be working for, you know, affordable housing for artists when there's such a need for affordable housing in general. Yeah. Um, you know, the answer for me is you know, make more artists. And you know, several years later, we've got the Creative Vision Factory right on the other side of Planned Parenthood, and we have guys there that are literally like, you know, like before our program, wouldn't have had the, the capital or the capacity to put together these materials. Now, you know, they not only have portfolios, they have long exhibition records. Uh, one of them has been written up in art Forum. We have another guy who's going to be featured in Raw Vision magazine this winter, and they're showing all over the place. Hey, everyone. Carl, the producer, here. So this is a conversation that went pretty long. We're just under halfway through right now. Um, But due to the timing of the recording, the release, and just the fact that it was over an hour and a half, uh, I thought it was appropriate to split this into two halves. So hope you've been enjoying it so far. The next half um, is going to be more about uh, Michael's experiences in Wilmington, in the Creative Vision Factory, uh, how art relates to mental health, and some of the political implications and some of the cultural implications of what he's learned over the last nine years. And I think it's really worth listening to. So the next half will most likely be coming out tomorrow on Saturday. And hope you enjoyed this and hope you'll tune in. So uh,
0: see you tomorrow.